Welcome to another ABI podcast. I'm Ann Lawton, a professor of law at Michigan State University College of Law and the ABI resident scholar. With me are three of the eight authors of a new ABI publication, A Practitioner's Guide to Liquidation and Litigation Trusts. My guests are David Bart, the Director of Bankruptcy, Workouts, and Complex Litigation for the Great Lakes Region of McGladry LLP in Chicago, and chair of the ABI's Task Force on Litigation Trusts. Daniel Doyle, who's of counsel with the firm of Lashley & Bear PC in St. Louis, and who also chairs the Bankruptcy and Creditors' Rights section of the Transportation Lawyers Association. And Michael Reed, who's of counsel at the Philadelphia office of Pepper Hamilton LLP, and a member of the firm's Corporate Restructuring and Bankruptcy Group. Mr. Reed also is a fellow in the American College of Bankruptcy. Welcome, gentlemen. Glad to be here. So let's start, uh, David, with you. Why did you decide to write this book? What gap were you trying to fill in the market? Who's your target audience here? Well, I think all of us on the phone have been in the profession a long time, and we've seen the sea change that's occurred in recent years with the search for a rapid resolution of cases mm-hmm. and the emergence of bankruptcy litigation trusts and liquidation trusts as one of the important ways to do it, um, there's no textbook available. There's no explanation for, you know, incoming attorneys and financial professionals that kind of lays out the general issues and tries to set up conceptual frameworks and tries to promote best practices. So um, that's really why we did it. And um, the target audience is everywhere from sort of those that have less experience dealing with these trusts so there is a, quite a bit of introductory material. But it's, we've also tried to prime the pump by providing uh, an introduction to some more technical, specialized issues um, with, with the chapters dealing with like jurisdictional and environmental trust and some of those types of uh, topics. Okay. Hey, so, and yes. this is Mike. This treatise collects many different things together. There are a lot of different, the the thing about the treatise that I think is really valuable is that it collects a lot of relevant pieces of the pie into one place. And I think that's one of the things that makes it not only very valuable, but I think somewhat unique. So before we dive into some of the more technical stuff, uh, could you give the audience a little bit of an idea of liquidation trusts as contrasted with a litigation trust? If you could briefly explain when the debtor would use each of those in a particular case. Well, re- really the difference has to do with what type of assets are held. So in a liquidation trust, you might be holding operating assets uh, that still have to be liquidated before uh, the proceeds come available to administer the remainder uh, issues in the case. In a litigation trust, the primary asset is ongoing um, court cases, litigation that may result in recoveries for the beneficiaries, which are you know normally the, the creditors. Um, there's a couple of different uh, uh, sort of mega cases that you could talk about, um, which have, which serve as nice examples of the ways to um, bifurcate the many issues that might be involved in a case. Like General Motors, for example, they put their general unsecured creditors in a trust. They also had an environmental remediation trust. There was a separate trust for the asbestos claimants. And they had yet another trust to handle the litigation recoveries from the avoidance action. So there you see Mm. multiple trusts used in a mega case. Okay. 
So, Dan, let's talk about what some of the primary benefits are of a liquidation trust. Uh, yes, I think there's three primary benefits. One is savings. The second is uh, uh, the time that it takes to close an estate is, is accelerated. And the trustee has flexibility that he wouldn't otherwise have if it were a formal Chapter 11 liquidating plan. Uh, the savings, I think, are reaped by uh, making the process much more flexible and much more fast than it would be in a Chapter 11 uh, liquidation, where every party in interest has the opportunity to weigh in on about every matter possible. Essentially, the trust is trying to save or create a dividend for the unsecured creditors basically by saving cost of administration in the liquidation. Uh, the time is, you know, time is money, <clears throat> whether it's bankruptcy or elsewhere, yeah. particularly when you've got wasting assets. Uh, and since it is a matter of contract and the trust instrument, the trustee may have a whole lot of flexibility that it wouldn't have if he had to go or she in front of a judge every time they made a decision. So, Dan, what would you say now are some of the disadvantages of forming liquidation trusts? Well, I think some of the uh, disadvantages are is that, you know, by the fact that it's, it's less transparent uh, to stakeholders than a Chapter 11 liquidation proceeding, you know, that, that creates uh, problems if the trustee doesn't keep his uh, set of beneficiaries informed about what he's doing. The, you know, the trust instrument and the order appointing the trustee and even the plan itself can contain uh, terms that allow the trustee the flexibility to go back into court and have a 363 sale approved or get a settlement approved under you know Rule 911 if the creditor wants it. But generally, purchasers are not always that sophisticated and don't need a comfort order from a court uh, in connection with any uh, transfer of assets. So a lot of it happens kind of under the surface. It's, it's key for the trustee to keep his uh, constituency informed about what's going on. And, and probably the best way to do that and save money rather than send out you know, hard copy reports periodically is to maintain a website. Okay. You know, uh, let people know how to access it. Okay. So those are the mechanisms that you um, are referring to to keep creditors up to date, right? Yeah. Okay. So you already have talked a little bit about some of the disadvantages of the trust, but can you give us a little idea about what some of the primary mistakes that you've seen people make in establishing liquidation trusts? Well, the, the primary mistakes I've, uh, I've run across is where there is a, a trust set up, a trustee appointed, there are assets uh, to be liquidated, but the asset values aren't sufficient to support a dividend. Uh, I think it's a mistake for trustees just to close up the estate and walk away. I, they've got to tell the court and they've got to tell the uh, stakeholders what's happening and, and why there is no distribution because there may have been some unrealistic expectations. Um, and then also there generally are significant uh, unsecured creditors in these larger cases and they, you know, certainly would not be happy if uh, things just kind of disappeared. So it's really uh. a matter of information and, you know, 
getting a comfort order from the court to approve a final dis distribution and to uh, approve the list of beneficiaries who are getting the distribution is also key. Um, and you know, it's a, it's a little housekeeping issue, but you know, it's important to build into the plan what to do if, after two or three years of liquidating assets, a creditor cannot be found. Ah, uh, okay. Trust, yeah, the trust has to bear the expense of trying to find them, unless the court orders otherwise. Okay. So, Mike, um, in the book, you talk about some areas of concern for liquidation trusts. There's sort of preserving or retaining claims, standing issues, race judicata. That was a really fascinating chapter. Um, so these seem like they're three related but not coextensive concepts, right? Right. Yeah. So you want to talk about retention first? Yeah, sure. That would be good. All right. In order for the plan documents to adequately retain the claims, the plan and usually also the disclosure statement will contain language expressly describing the claims and making it clear that the claims are to be retained by the estate and transferred to the trust for prosecution or settlement by the liquidating trustee or administrator. The concept of retention really involves two things. First, the plan documents, documents must adequately describe the claims. And second, the plan documents must contain language that expressly preserves and transfers the claims from the bankruptcy estate to the trust. It should be noted that the bankruptcy code seems to require that the plan of reorganization, as distinguished from the disclosure statement, have language retaining the claims. But, what, but a standard practice is to have retention language in both documents. Okay. Most, most of the case law addresses the adequacy of the description of the claims in the plan documents. It is almost always prudent to identify potential defendants by their specific names as opposed to generically, although sometimes cases have held that generic descriptions is sufficient. Uh, a lot of the uncertainty in the case law has revolved around how specific the description of the types of causes of action to be asserted against the defendants has to be. For example, where the claims to be asserted are preferential transfer claims, identifying the specific potential defendants and stating that the estate is retaining the right to assert preferential transfer claims against those parties should be adequate. By contrast, language that the estate will retain all claims against third parties is probably too general to be effective. Mm. In one case, the court found that because the plan referenced only, quote, avoidance claims arising under the bankruptcy code, unquote, the reservation was insufficient to include avoidance claims based on state law. Ah. The treatise contains a discussion of these various holdings and recommends that practitioners study the law applicable in their various circuits and districts in framing the best claims retention language. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then there's also possibly, you talked about the retention language and then the transfer of the claims to the trust. There's also the standing question for the litigation, liquidation trustee, excuse me. What is that problem? Okay. Well, standing really is the legal authority that the liquidating trustee or administrator has to bring the claims. 
Now, the first reason why the liquidating trustee might have a standing issue is because the plan documents do not contain language that adequately retains the claims, and we've already talked about retention, so mm-hmm. that could be a cause of standing problem. Secondly, um, the uh, trustee might have a standing problem because of other deficiencies in, in the documents. For example, I recall that in one case that I was involved in, a standing issue arose because of a question about the duration of the appointment of the trustee or the duration of the trust itself. And so that was raised by uh, one of the defendants uh, in challenging the uh, standing of the trustee. And a third reason uh, why the trustee might have a standing problem is because the claims to be asserted do not belong to the debtor or the estate, but rather to individual creditors. Okay. So there's three basic issues you're saying. There's a retention language that you need. There's this um, sort of other deficiencies in the documents that you were talking about, which is the example was the duration of the appointment of the trustee, and then that the claims don't belong to the debtor. They belong to creditors. Yeah, and I don't mean to suggest that those are the only reasons, but those are three, I think, Big ones. Significant reasons that I've seen. Okay. So then you also talk about race judicata and also um, judicial estoppel. But race judicata, that was interesting to me. Could you describe that problem? That seems like a, um, that seemed a more complicated kind of a problem when I was reading your book. Well, if, if with your permission, I'll, um, I'll, I'll touch on both of those doctrines. Sure. There's a lot of overlap and interrelation. Um, race judicata is a doctrine uh, also known as um, uh, preclusion, um, is a doctrine that arises out of the law of judgments. Mm-hmm. Uh, the doctrine prevents a party from pursuing a claim that the party already raised or could have raised in a prior proceeding. If the doctrine of race judicata applies, the party will be precluded from asserting the claim in the subsequent action. The liquidating trustee could be barred from asserting a claim under the doctrine of res judicata based upon acts or omissions made by the debtor before or even during the bankruptcy case. Mm-hmm. Uh, in general, the doctrine of judicial estoppel prevents a party from asserting a position that is contrary to one that the party had asserted in a prior proceeding where the prior court adopted that contrary position. Under some formulations, there is also a requirement that the party have benefited from the earlier position. In the bankruptcy context, the issue of judicial estoppel often arises where there is a claim that the debtor believes that it holds against a creditor, but which the debtor fails to disclose during the bankruptcy proceedings. This failure by the debtor is sometimes intentional, based upon a desire to conceal the claim and the benefits of that claim from creditors. In other cases, the failure to disclose may be due to neglect. This might happen, for example, in the context of a Chapter 11 case, where claims are not adequately disclosed under the plan documents. And this ties back into the whole question of retention. Okay. 
Um, the benefit to the debtor, by the way, uh, in those places or those jurisdictions where there's a third element to this doctrine, the benefit to the debtor in a bankruptcy context is often found in the fact that the debtor received a discharge. There's obviously some degree of overlap between the doctrines of res judicata and judicial estoppel in general, including language in the plan documents that adequately describes the claims will go a long way toward addressing this pro these problems. The treatise contains a discussion of these doctrines and what practitioners can do to deal with these issues. Okay. So one other question, because what I didn't realize was that the confirmation of the plan itself could have these race judicata effects. That seemed to be the issue in that Browning versus Loving case. Do I have that right? Uh, the confirmation of the plan c can be deemed... The plan process itself and the confirmation process can be deemed a proceeding that once the court has entered judgment confirming the plan, terminates that proceeding. So that proceeding can constitute the first proceeding for purposes of, the, um, of either the race judicata or the judicial estoppel analysis. Okay. Okay, and then there would be a subsequent proceeding, typically the lawsuit brought by the liquidating trustee in which the, the claim was sought to be asserted, and the argument would be that there was either that judicial estoppel applied or um, res judicata applied because of what was done or not done during the confirmation proceeding. Okay. Okay, so David, let's talk about some of the tax issues. This is pretty complicated, um, so I want to stay, if possible, with some of the basics. But in the book, you state that liquidation trusts are normally treated as grantor trusts. And if I understand this correctly, the creditors can be grantors or the debtor can be the grantor. Is that right? That's right. Okay. And, and, and the, reason, the reason you want to use a grantor trust is to pass through – a grantor trust is a pass-through tax entity. It does not pay federal income tax. And, of course, every dollar that's paid in income tax is a dollar less of recoveries available to the beneficiaries. Hmm. To be considered a liquidation trust, the trust must be organized for the primary purpose of liquidating and distributing the assets. And that's the critical thing. So your plan documents, your your – your, your plan, your disclosure statement, your trust agreement itself, all of the corpus documents that create the trust and define the trustee's role have to be oriented towards liquidating and distributing the assets. The, the trust would be at risk of having tax placed upon it if there was um, inconsistent definitions, if the, if the course of the trust gains or uh, from the sale of assets or recoveries from various types of litigation might be, might be deemed as an increase in value for the trust, and, and there's a risk that then you would create a tax. And, of course, as I said, if you're paying tax, you're not providing recoveries for the beneficiaries. So the critical concept, as we explain in the book, is, do you, is the definition of the trust as a grantor trust, and there's a series of requirements around that. Okay. And you have samples in your... Um appendices, very, a lot of different documents, plus I think a lot of the um, various IRS documents as well, right? Right. And we, what we tried to do was, 
um, author sort of a sample plan, disclosure statement, and trust agreement, and those are prepared by the authors themselves. We also provided samples from some of the mega cases um, so that you could look at uh, the language that's used, both in disclosure and in the uh, creation of the trust itself. Mm -hmm. And importantly, we've provided Revenue Procedure 9445 in some of the IRS cases. Revenue Procedure 9445 is critical because it, it is the document that provides the guidelines on how to obtain a private letter ruling from the IRS that the trust itself was created as a li li liquidation or litigation um, trust. And there's a number of guidelines that it sets out. I mean, sort of in general terms, the trust has to be confirmed under Chapter 11. Um, the plan and disclosure dis uh, documents have to indicate how the estate will transfer the assets to the trust. The beneficiaries are deemed as the grantors of the trust. There needs to be valuation evidence. Reserves for disputed claims must be um, addressed. Um, and very, very importantly, there needs to be a termination date. The trust can't just go on forever. Um, and there's a number of, uh, you know, there are some investment restrictions um, that are geared towards uh, safety net investments, such as uh, restricting um, the trustee to use treasury bills or certificates of deposits. Again, the idea is to, to preserve, liquidate, and distribute recoveries. It is not to um, run the trust as a profit-generating enterprise. Okay. Hey, uh, this is Mike. Yes. Um, I, I just uh, uh, one, of the, one of the points that David made about the um, work, and some, uh, this is an area I'm not particularly familiar with, but the the time limitations uh, that trust cannot be perpetual, and so that they will have termination dates. You may have recalled that I mentioned uh, in my earlier discussion that one of the, the issues that can be raised, uh, one of the problems that can raise standing issues is uh, a, a limitation on the duration of the trust. Mm. And so I, you know, that's how you know, someone. Some might say, well, why would you, why would you just not have a perpetual trust so that you would would avoid that problem? So I just wanted to mention that. Yeah. So you can't have a perpetual trust because you run into problems with tax issues. Is that right? But you can't have. You have duration problems for standing. Yeah, and I don't know. I, I don't know that this is a problem that comes up that often, but it did come up in one case that I was involved in. Okay. Have you seen this problem, David? Yes. Generally speaking, trusts have sort of a five-year uh, duration, three to five years. It, it is possible to extend the life of the trust with appropriate reporting, and, you know, you can uh, seek, seek authority from the, um, the judge. But um, the goal, I think, from the IRS perspective, is not to simply have the trust exist into perpetuity as an ongoing business enterprise, and that's that's really their primary concern. And this is one of the reasons why it's it's really important to set up the right bench of professionals. You need to have your bankruptcy lawyers. You need to have your litigators for the complex issues. You need to have your financial people who know how to deal with the trust, but you also need to have on your bench an appropriate tax professional who understands this world of um, how to manage liquidating and litigation trusts to protect you from any risks of uh, tax exposure. So, Dan, uh, let's go and talk a little bit about some ERISA issues. And in the book, you state that the trustee may be considered a benefit plan fiduciary and be held personally liable for plan losses. 
So can you give us some examples of problems a liquidation trustee has to be aware of? Well, a liquidation trustee, of course, by its very label, is a fiduciary. Anybody, of course, who acts for the benefit of somebody else is a fiduciary. And this gives a lot of people pause before they think about accepting that role. And, I, and um, that's because of the liability issues. The, um, you know, they're protected to an extent by limitations of liability in the trust document or in the order confirming the plan that authorizes the trust, uh, or in employment agreements where they, you know, mimic Delaware law that liability is limited to gross negligence or willful misconduct. But on top of that, being a kind of garden variety uh, fiduciary as a liquidation trust trustee, if there there are certain things that can go into the trust that kind of make them a super trustee with regard to fiduciary duties. One is, of course, if you are dealing with employee benefits. And, you know, I'm not a benefit employee, but I've been involved in a trust that did exactly that. And just anecdotally, the people that we interviewed for trustee, one of them uh, refused to be called a trustee or a plan administrator or even an even a disbursing agent because they thought that just the actual title would incur additional liability. But with regard to these ERISA trusts, most of them are voluntary employee benefit associations. You'll see that in a lot of Chapter 11 cases where uh, companies are discarding their uh, defined benefit plans they're, they're, and putting them into these freestanding trusts. Uh, there are several issues that come off. The one that comes to mind, um, uh, at least to my mind, is there are federal restrictions on what can be in a VEBA. Uh, primarily, there cannot be an over-concentration of stock of the company that is setting it up. Uh, in one instance, you know, we had to apply to the government to get an exemption so that, so that the percentage of stock that was going into the VEBA under the plan you know, wouldn't, wouldn't disqualify it. Uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, I'm not a benefits lawyer, but this certainly goes to show how you need to bring a benefits lawyer whenever ERISA uh, obligations come into play. Uh -huh. Hey, Dan, this is Mike. What did you ultimately, the gentleman who didn't want to be called a trustee or an administrator <laughs> or a dispersing agent, I'm dying to know what, the, what he was ultimately, or she was ultimately called. Uh, she wasn't called anything because we didn't hire him. <laughs> we hired somebody who was comfortable with being a trustee. <laughs> so you know, and the other the other thing that uh, also uh, pops up occasionally is, um, you know, the thing about a, a trust is it, it brings in a lot of different elements. And if a, a trust is also su supposed to pay out certain claims under a settlement during the case, the, the instance I'm thinking of is you know a Warren Act uh, settlement where employees who weren't given their 60 days notice of a plant shutdown have a claim that um, arguably is priority, um, you know, they get paid through the trust. And the problem that arose and frequently arises is the, the federal government considers the plant trustee to be an employer under those circumstances. Um, and that would mean that there would have to be a withholding, you know, there'd be payroll withholdings from those individual former employees' uh, distributions, even though the company is no longer in existence. Hmm. 
okay. which makes it more expensive and more cumbersome to uh, operate the trust. Uh, there's also the issue of issuing W-2s instead of 1099s. So the way around that is to, of course, go to the court and get an order blessing whatever you decide to do. And uh, in the instance I'm thinking of, we went to the court, we notified the IRS, gave them notice that we were going to issue 1099s and we weren't going to withhold anything. Uh, they didn't respond, so it, it uh, solved that problem for us. Okay. Good old race judicata. <laughs> so you also mentioned the liquidation trustee can imperil the benefit plan's qualified status under the IRS. We're going back a little bit into the tax issues. How might that happen? Well, if there is an overconcentration, for example, as, as I mentioned, in uh, company stock, um, you know, this, that was an issue in, in the solution plan. We had agreed to a, a certain uh, amount of stock, and it, and it turned out to be higher, a higher concentration than the federal government would have allowed. Had we not gone and got that letter giving us an exemption, it would have affected the uh, tax advantage status of the VIVA. Okay. So, Mike, let's jump to litigation trusts. Um, what are the similarities and the differences in these mass tort versus environmental trusts? Well, probably the most common situation where the use of a litigation trust uh, has been prominent is bankruptcy cases involving mass tort liabilities. The most famous case in this area, of course, was the Johns Manville bankruptcy back in the uh, 1980s. Uh, beginning in the 1980s, uh, although uh, applied uh, most often to asbestos liabilities, um, uh, these types of trusts have been used to resolve other types of liabilities, including those associated with medical device failures, defective automobile parts or systems, contaminated food products, and even catastrophic events such as oil, oil spills. Um, in terms of similarities and differences between mass tort versus environmental trusts, um, well, mass tort trusts usually are utilized to enable the debtor to emerge from bankruptcy as a reorganized going concern, insulated from the mass tort liabilities that precipitated the bankruptcy. The mass tort liabilities are transferred to the trust, along with assets consisting of the proceeds of insurance policies and other assets of the debtor, possibly including equity securities of the debtor. The mass tort liabilities are uh, channeled, as a term of art, uh, to the trust, and the reorganized debtor and sometimes its affiliates are protected from those liabilities by court injunctions. The debtor is also protected by the discharge, the bankruptcy discharge. The trust retains and administers the assets, resolves the claims, and makes distributions to claimants from the trust. Environmental liabilities like mass tort liabilities and products liabilities are often very large in amount, involve many claimants, and may become manifest over long periods of time. Environmental liabilities also sometimes are deemed non-dischargeable in bankruptcy. Environmental trusts, both within and outside of bankruptcy, are usually established pursuant to the terms of a settlement agreement entered into by and among the debtor, environmental enforcement agencies, and other potentially responsible parties. The terms of the settlement are often ratified and incorporated into the terms of the debtor's Chapter 11 plan, 
which will usually be accompanied by an injunction channeling the environmental liabilities to the trust. The trust usually perform multiple functions, including receiving and holding title to designated properties affected by the environmental contamination, carrying out remediation of the properties, paying administrative costs, and disposing of certain properties. The trusts are usually funded through assets contributed by the debtor, insurers, and other parties, and the primary function is to manage and fund the remediation of the designated contaminated properties. I'm assuming you they had environmental trusts in the Asarco case, is that right? Yeah, Asarco had a lot of stuff going on in it, but yes, they, I think they did have big environmental trusts in that case, yes. Yeah, and that's the one that's kicked that issue up to the Supreme Court about um, a fees, right? Baker Botts trying to get their fees, defending their fees. Yes, uh, Asarco um, was one of those rare occasions involving a 100% plan. Yeah. And, um, yes, that uh, one of the great curiosities of this, this Supreme Court term is the proliferation of what to some might be considered esoteric bankruptcy issues that have made it up to the court, uh, including um, the allowability of fees mm-hmm. um, spent defending fees. Let me ask everyone a final question. What's the most important thing to consider when you're setting up or running a liquidation or a litigation trust? So, Mike, I'll start with you. That's not a fair question. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want someone else to try answering first? And then you no, can... <laughs> I, I think, you know, I guess I'm biased. I mean, I think that um, the most important thing is to make, it's, it's, I'm going to give you kind of an, uh, I'm going to, it's an answer that is multifaceted in the sense that it's making sure that your documentation is tightly done and that you've got, as um, David has described it, the right bench of professionals available to administer the trust. Okay. So, um, Dan, do you have anything to add to that? Well, you know, I'd, I'd echo the part about the uh, bench strength. I mean, I think the, the crucial aspect of setting up a liquidation trust, which it would also be reflected in the document, an understanding of the nature of the assets and the challenges that they themselves may pose in liquidating them through a trust and putting together the right uh, team, including tax people, ERISA people if needed, and employment people, uh, to make sure that the beneficiaries are served as efficiently as possible. And David, we give you the last word. To me, it's all about sort of setting up the right governance authority, and that begs the question of very, very good communication. The documents need to match each other up, but things will come up in the course of the case. Recoveries will be more or less than they were planned for. Um, there will be discoveries made about things the debtor may not have done that it should have done, um, or when involving uh, environmental uh, remediation type trusts and the corresponding environmental liability or mass tort trusts. You know there may be issues that come up. You've got to have a clear authority for the trustee to act for smaller issues on his own, but he has to also seek clear authority from perhaps a governing committee. Uh, and the courts on material larger issues involved in the trust. Because in the end, it's all about trying to find creditor recoveries 
And you don't want people second-guessing at the end of the day whether the trustee and the team employed was acting in the best interest of everyone. Right. I would like to thank David Bart, Daniel Doyle, and Michael Reed for taking time today to talk with us about their recent publication, A Practitioner's Guide to Liquidation and Litigation Trusts. The practice guide is a treasure trove of information and has a number of sample documents and checklists in the appendices. I recommend it to anyone who represents large Chapter 11 debtors. I am Ann Lawton, the ABI Resident Scholar. This has been another ABI podcast. Thank you for listening.